0: Well, if last week we used a little bit of humor to say that it was Shabbat Goldstein Haggadol, yes, the great Goldstein Shabbat, then today we're going to be a little more honest that it's just Shabbat Hagadol, yes, the great Shabbat. And this is a Shabbat that we prepare for Passover on, so when the time comes for the Torah study today, Howard said that what he'll do is just prepare everyone who comes uh, for Passover. Pesach. And next Friday, of course, March 30th, is the first night of Passover, yes? Interestingly, today we'll try to cover the whole book of Philippians. And so do you realize that Shabbat Hagadol is known for a long sermon? Yeah, are you aware of this? So the rule will be that if anyone thinks the own egg food is spoiling or it gets to be three o'clock, just stop me. So, worthy living Philippians, we're going to start with the thrust, the main thrust of what is the book of Philippians saying when it exhorts the community of Messiah followers at Philippi? What is the main message of that book? But I want to start here saying that this is really, you used to say this is going to be a bird's eye view. This is going to be a drone's eye view. There's a 21st century, yes? And so the other day I was in the coffee shop and one of the Cogers came in who owns Coger Construction. And he said, Henry, could you do me a favor? I said, What is it? He said, Would you watch my drone in my computer while I use the restroom? And I said, Pray tell, why do you have a drone? And he said, Oh, come sit with me. So I sat with him, and he turned his computer on, and he showed me that he just came from a site where he used his drone. And he flew the drone up over a a, a major building. And he had some mapping software, and it provided the dimensions of every room in that building to his computer from the drone. And now he says, I can bid the job out. I can tell you what size the walls are. I know how much paint I need. That's what a drone can do. And I said, wow, I didn't know that. I'll be using that illustration from now on. So this is a drone's eye view with details of Philippians in a single sermon. And then we'll be using the book of Philippians for our 50-day walk, journey between Passover and Shavuot. And we'll do it in four parts, just a word about Philippi as an ancient city in a Roman colony, why Paul wrote the letter, Paul's theologizing, not his theology, and the messianic exhortation component of this letter. And these four things are going to blur all over each other, yes? And I was going to make you a handout of all the slides, but I just realized I can't plant a tree in Israel to make up for the forest I'll kill for that outline. Okay, so we have Philippi, an ancient city in a Roman colony. We have Philippi being named by Alexander the Great's father, Philip, that's where the name came from, around 356 BCE, and you need to know that after the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE, it became a Roman colony. Why is that important to us? We're talking about a community of Gentile and Jewish Messianic people in a city that's a Roman colony that has been such since 31 BCE. Think about when Paul is writing, say around 62. That means for just under 100 years, that city has been functioning as a Roman colony. So what is it like for Messianic Jews to live in that Roman colony? What is it like for Messianic Gentiles to live in that Roman colony? That's going to matter to us. So it's firmly established by Paul's time. It's Romanocentric. It's centered on Rome's vision, values, way of living. A lovely thing to do as part of this sermon maybe tonight, is to read the account in Acts 16 of how Paul got to Philippi in the first place. So I'm I'm going to be Howard for a minute who says, we really don't have time for this story. Here, let me tell it. Yes, I have learned well. So at the beginning of Acts 16, Paul has a vision, yes? So here's the short version of 16, read in its details. Paul has a vision of a person saying, come and help us here in Macedonia. And he interprets that vision as, we need to go bring the good news to Philippi in Europe. And that's what they do. They get on a boat, and they travel. And they no sooner get there, and the Shabbat comes around, and they find this place of prayer outside the city gate, and there are a group of women, thank you, with no notes. That's how we listen. We go, And there were a group of women, yes. And one of the women there was Lydia, the purple fabric merchant yes? And Paul starts to teach there, and she responds to the good news, and she becomes the doorway for the whole good news reaching the continent of Europe. That's incredible, yes? And her whole house gets immersed. They become messianics. They start off in the way of the Lord, and they press on Paul and his companion to provide hospitality. He now has a base, a place he can stay at and be taken care of while he brings the good news of Yeshua Messiah to this area, yes? And the story continues, yes? That's the good news, right? And then what happens? There's another woman in the story, yes? And she is a fortune teller who makes her master, she's a slave woman, makes her master's money by foretelling what's coming, And she walks around behind Paul and those that are serving, and she's always saying something, right? Of the Most High God, showing you the way to salvation. Of the Most High God, showing you the way of salvation. And she keeps yakking this all day long everywhere they are. And It says in the text, the word in Greek is Paul got what? Annoyed and told that spirit, come out of her. And when the spirit came out of her, she could no longer do that. They could no longer make money. So Paul starts out with a wonderful time in Europe. And where does he end up now? Being struck with rods and beaten. And then where? He ends up in prison. Yes? This is the beginning of Paul's story in Europe. He ends up in prison with Silas. And what does the text say they do? They get out their Nokia? And they call the institution and they say, hey, we need to have a march. We need to protest that we're in prison. This is wrong, yes? Well, actually, there were no Nokia's in those days. That's not what they did. The text says that at midnight, what were they busy doing? They were busy complaining and ranting and raving about their situation, yes? No, they were busy singing hymns and praying. And all the prisoners were getting the benefit. What would we do if we were imprisoned for the Messianic way of life? Would we be like Paul? You just get busy doing what you're always doing, but now in shackle. Isn't that incredible? And then what happens after the singing and prayer? A minor earthquake. Yes. This is like the best action-adventure movie you could see. If you're going to go see an action-adventure movie, I'm going to save you the money. Have it free. Just read Acts 16 tonight. Yes? There's an earthquake. The shackles come free. And then the prison guard thinks they'll all have escaped. So he takes out his sword to do what? Commit suicide. And Paul says, hey, put your sword away. Calm down. Nobody's left. We're just having a a messianic prayer song meeting. Yes, that is really the story in a nutshell. And then you see how it ends up. But guess what? When they're beaten, and then thrown in prison. This is the conclusion of the people. Acts 16, 20 through 21. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming what? Custom, which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe being what? Romans. This is a Roman colony where everything is Roman-centered. Whatever you bring, whoever you are, if it doesn't fit this, you're in trouble. Understand, we as a messianic community in Philippi are in trouble and in different ways if we're Jews or we're Gentiles. So in a Roman colony, living out one's citizenship was associated with great pride, great responsibility, and a social ladder of honors known as the cursus honorum, where you could see these are the steps this guy went up. Boy, look at him compared to me, woe was I. All about climbing a social ladder in competition with one's fellow citizens out of what? Selfish ambition. And that's the key point when it comes to exhortation why Paul wrote this letter. So why did Paul write this letter? It's both a thank you letter and a letter of moral exhortation that most likely address current and potential realities and conflicts. He's thanking them for their relentless partnership with him in the spread of the good news, and it's on record in the letter itself that they support him substantially financially, and so he's thanking them. And then it's a very serious letter of moral exhortation that answers the question, how should we live in this Roman colony? And now we get to the heart of the letter, some call this the thesis statement, and this is Philippians 1.27, only live out your, and it's a word for citizenship, it's not the usual word for walk that translates halakha, it's not that usual word, it's a word that city is built from, polis, the city, it's about citizenship, and we'll see why translators call it heavenly citizenship, on earth in a roman colony and we will apply that to our own situation only live out your heavenly citizenship in your roman colony in a manner worthy of the good news of the messiah so that whether i come and see you or i'm absent i may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit a careful reading of this letter we have the online philippians course being edited to put up line, all the details will be there in that seven-part course. But here we're just going to say, the standing firm in one spirit in this letter written to Gentiles has to do with Gentiles standing firm in Messiah alongside Jews standing firm in Messiah, knowing that these ones do not have to become these ones, Because it's rejoice, O nations, with his people, Israel. And he wants all those Gentiles to stand firm in that. Paul wants that because for Paul, the new covenant has arrived. The new creation is here. The time has come for the nations to join Israel. And if you behave like that is not happening then you are not showing the world that Messiah is here and the new covenant has been inaugurated. So he'll go crazy if anybody tries to upset that order. And it's all about those two striving together for the faithfulness of the good news. A word about this word that's in blue up there in the rectangle, that's the special word. It was used by the Maccabees in their rather violent living against the Greek world for how they lived robustly the Torah way of life. It was used by Paul in Acts 23.1 of how he lived robustly the Torah life before Messiah. It's very important. And he's using it here to show now the time has come for this kind of robust living in the face of an uh, opposing world in Messiah. So chapter three of Philippians is not about a conversion from Judaism to Christianity. There is no religion here, there's only a way of life. And it's not about giving up or demonizing his Judaism for some generic messianic way of life. He only diminishes his Jewish way of life at the highest level in Philippians 3, to say, here is my pedigree in my cursus honorum. Here's all the honors I was celebrated for as a Pharisee. But guess what? I'm going to negate that now. Not wholly, in part, so you don't miss one thing. Messiah's here. It's all about me being a Messianic Jew now. Don't miss Messiah like I did. I was the creme de la creme of the Pharisees of my time, but I missed the Messiah. And I'll do anything now, including using extremely hyperbolic terms to make sure you don't miss that the new creation is here. And every person who is in Messiah is part of the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. So why is this citizenship then heavenly. It's right here in 320. But our citizenship is in the heavens from which also we eagerly wait for a savior. It's interesting that the word soter, savior, is there because Augustus, who's responsible for the majority of Philippi being a Roman colony, is called savior in an inscription, is called God in an inscription. And about him, it said, the beginning of the good news of, sounds like Mark 1.1? No, that's in the Priene inscription of 9 BC, of Caesar Augustus. The language used for him is the language used for Messiah. There's an implicit challenge there to the world they're living in. We're eagerly waiting for a savior. They think their savior's already there in the emperor. We're eagerly waiting for one from the heaven. So this is their heavenly citizenship. I'm going to get ahead of myself here, I know, but that's okay. The deal is this. There's an unseen, invisible kingship of God and Messiah in the heavens right now. We can talk about what produced it. We're supposed to live according to those values while stuck in our Roman colony. We're supposed to give the world a foretaste of what that's really like. On earth now while we wait for it to drop out of the heavens to the earth permanently. He compares people who walk this way using this special word to people who don't walk this way using the general word for halakha ways to walk. For many walk, there's the regular Greek word for halakhic practice, of whom I often told you and now even tell you weeping, They're enemies of the execution stake of Messiah, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, whose honor is their shame, reverse values, and who set their mind on earthly things. I just want to highlight two of these. Number one, whose God is their belly. This is an idiom from the time period that means to live a self-pleasing life with no cost and no risk whose God is their belly, is to live a self-pleasing life, no cost, no risk. Who set their minds on earthly things is his very last statement. What does that have to do with? It? Those who are not seeing that invisible kingship of God and Messiah in the heavens and living according to its values here in a very difficult Roman colony, but instead are focused on the ways of life, the social ladder, and what it's like to live in a great place like Rome. We have to apply that message to ourselves. There are three mentions. Do you think three is the strategic number in the Jewish worldview? Do you think that, and you shall love the Lord with all of your, and with all of your, and with all of your, was redundancy or strategic thinking on the part of God? That's called a rhetorical question, Yes. And therefore, many threes in scripture are extremely strategic. Three times in the book of Philippians, he mentions the coming day of Messiah. Here they are. I'm confident of this very thing. The one who began a good work in you will perfect it, bring it to maturity until the day of Messiah Yeshua. Use number two, in order that you may choose the things that are superior while you're living in the Roman colony and you know the Messianic way of life and may be pure and blameless, blameless above reproach, in the day of Messiah. And third, by holding fast the word of life so that I will have a reason to boast in the day of Messiah that I didn't run in vain. Right? I want to honor our congregational leader who usually gives the sermon because at our coffee we're talking about, you know what we have to do? We have to teach that into being. We have to preach that into being. We have to pray that into being. And then we have to, pre- we have to teach that. We have to pray that into or out of existence, depending upon what's among us. And we know we always hope? That we didn't what? Run in vain, yes? That we didn't labor in vain. Why? We want to see everybody arrive at a mature person in Messiah, which is also in this text. So three times in this letter, he talks about the day of Messiah, which means the Messianic community living in the nitty-gritty of the terrible situation of that Roman colony has to every day not lose sight of the fact that the day of Messiah will come. That means the day will come when heaven's floor will give way and the kingship of God and Messiah in the heavens that we currently live under its values unseen will now be totally seen by all forever and ever. Or if Siddell was here, I would say, Siddell, like in New York, when we say forever, yes? It's because we spent all last night with Siddell. What's the point of this? Living so that you may be blameless and pure. Blameless, again, above reproach, pure, like a metal that's precious without any alloys that contaminate it. You might be children of God without blemish in the midst of what? Are we going to have a hard time relating to this statement in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Do we need a, a, an excursus, a half hour on that to explain that? No. Anybody that doesn't think we're living in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation definitely should see an eye doctor today. Yes? We have a list available. Among whom you shine as stars in the world. Among whom you shine as stars in the world. Isn't that incredible? Do you ever think about the fact that when we're done with the own egg and you go wherever you go, that's what we are supposed to be now. Shining like stars in the nighttime sky. That's precisely why this is the graphic I picked for the online Philippians course. It's a group of people all holding hands. Think of Jews as Jews, Gentiles as Gentiles, appropriating the messianic way of life, joined together in unity, shining like those stars in the nighttime sky. That is not too tall in order for us if we take this message away from Philippians. And where do I think Paul got this image from Daniel? Daniel 12:3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness, right covenant relations, right doing, will be like the stars forever and ever. Is this all making sense? So if you had to take something away before I drown you in the rest of the content of Philippians, yes, this is what I would take away. I would take away from this darash, that this is the gist of Philippians. Live in a manner worthy of your calling in Messiah. That has to do with understanding we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into an invisible kingship of God and Messiah in the heavens. And that's supposed to be real enough to us that we can give the world a foretaste of the coming full taste of that and in the process, shine like stars. You know, I joke about this, I wear fancy socks. I wear fancy socks and I put my leg up on the chair in the coffee shop and inevitably somebody says, Henry, what's up with the fancy socks? And I say, oh, I represent an invisible kingdom that that sock does justice to. That's a true story. And then I want to talk about Paul's theologizing. The most sound scholarship speaks of Paul's theologizing, not his theology. He wrote during this tumultuous time. Can you imagine what it was like for Messiah to actually show up in Jewish history? Can you really think about that? I mean, we have to just make this real. Think about if that happened today, if his reappearing was now. I mean, I would no longer be concerned if I had enough tuna at the egg. You see my point? What a change in perspective that would bring. But imagine having to explain that. I mean, I have to call my mother today. Can you imagine that call? Ma, Henry, I don't feel... Never mind, you don't feel good today. Listen, Messiah showed up again. She'd be thinking like, what? I'm crazy, yes? But wouldn't I be a little over the top if Messiah came? Yes? And and isn't it sovereign of God that today I happen to be the one that had to deliver this message? Because it has to be a little over the top. And I have come to be over the top and to be over the top more abundantly. That's my calling in Messiah. The new covenant has come. We're going to talk about Exodus 31 and Ezekiel 36 and 37. Why all messianics must be know those passages well. So understand, because of the situation Paul is in, we can call him hyperbolic Paul, extravagant Paul. He's going to use some very extravagant language because of the extravagance of what has taken place and how he doesn't want you to miss it. All Pauline theologizing is Jewish theologizing, reconfigured around the Messiah and the Ruach HaKodesh. Yes? So what we have from Paul's letters then is his situational theologizing. He writes a letter to deal with a specific situation. There is no armchair theology. It's not his systematic theology. He is not an armchair theologian. What do I mean by that? Jeff Rubenstein, yeah? We don't in the first century go, Jeffrey, can you meet me for lunch? Bring your pipe. We're going to sit and sip a whiskey for 12 hours, and we're going to ponder God, and then we're going to write a letter about our God ponderings so that everybody in the comfort of their homes can ponder God. That's modern theology. That's not the theology of Paul. So Paul is theologizing. He's writing on the run. There's a situation. Messiah has come. The new covenant is here and this problem exists. I got to write a letter to deal with the problem. The best in scholarship says we probably don't have all of Paul's theologizing. First and foremost to Paul is the Messiah and the Messiah event. The Messiah event is a term from scholarship that means he shows up, he's born, he lives, a Torah observant life. He suffers, he dies, he's buried, he resurrects. That's not the end of it. We don't end with the A word, ascension. He ascends, you end with the word session. He sits down at the right hand of God. That is the inauguration of the kingship of God and Messiah in the heavens, according to Isaiah 52.7. The point of Isaiah 52:7 is the good news is when your God reigns. Yeshua ascends, your God reigns. It's invisible for a time, but that's it. The kingship of God is here. This is the Messiah event. What is some of this hyperbolic language he uses? Philippians 3:4. Although my, I myself have reason for confidence indeed in the flesh, if anyone thinks they have grounds for confidence in the flesh, I far more why? Look at my Jewish pedigree. Circumcise the eighth day. I'm an eighth dayer. Circumcise the eighth day. I'm not one of those, join the Jewish people later. I'm an eighth dayer of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to Torah, a Pharisee, in regard to being zealous, I persecuted the ecclesia, the community Of Jews who, Peter read it this morning, returned, were restored to the God of Israel, and Gentiles who are rejoicing, O nations, with his people. I persecuted that thing. And while I was doing it, Messiah appeared to me and told me, Guess what? You're really persecuting not that entity. You're persecuting me. Imagine this They call this in the world a come-to-Jesus story. Imagine this come-to-Yeshua story. Is there any wonder why he is so radical in his language? Look at how he came to know Messiah. Look what he was doing when he came to know Messiah, seeing to it that messianics were even put to death. Whatever honors cursus honorum, honorum, H-O-N-O-R-U-M, Whatever honors were a gain to me, these honors I have come to regard as a loss, a liability, only because of the Messiah. Take the course. We'll explain what dialectical negation is and why it's said this way by Paul. More than that, I also regard everything to be a loss or a liability in view of what? Super eminent. He uses a word that means super eminent, which would mean his pedigree is eminent. Eminent not negative. It's already over the top. It's eminent. But knowing Messiah is super eminent. It's above that eminent. So I regard everything to be a liability in view of the super eminent value of what? Knowing Messiah, Yeshua, my Lord, because of whom I have accepted the loss of all things and regard them as... This word is like one of the most disgusting words. It can mean garbage, refuse. It can mean human excrement, that's hyperbolic Paul. And even there's a thought that our idiom, sorry to say this, but this is how bad the word is, it's all crap. A scholar wrote it probably is an idiom that means like it's all crap. He's only being that negative so you don't miss Messiah. He's not negating his Jewish history, his pedigree at all. And the point is at the end, so that I may gain Messiah. He is actually so over the top. He goes so far as to say, for to me, and that word is first in the Greek. It didn't have to be there. Greek word order matters. For to me, from my perspective, from my deepest personal point of reflection, to continue living is Messiah. What? That is the most extreme statement in all of Paul. To continue living is Messiah. That is hyperbolic, Paul. How could it be to live is Messiah, to continue living is Messiah? Here's what we think he's doing. There's a saying in his day. It's the big two words on the bottom. That says, Zane Christos. Listen to the difference between the two. The bottom one is, "Zain Christos. No, "Zain Christos. Zane the top one is what Paul said, Zain Christos. The only difference, except for the capital letter for Messiah, that's to live as Messiah on top. Underneath it is to live as good. Guess what it boils down to? Life is good. You know this brand? LG. The brand LG got its brand from this saying in the Greek world, Zain Christos. So in the Greek world, in the Roman world, life is good. Guess what? They had the LG brand in Paul's day everywhere. And everyone was saying, life is good. Life is good. Life is good. Life is good in a Roman colony where the God is the emperor. Worship him. Life is good in this Roman colony. Go to your carpenter's guild meeting tonight. Do a little sacrifice to Zeus. Life is good. Remind you of any other empire you might be living in? And Paul said, no, it's not Zain Christos. It's Zain Christos. Life is Messiah. Don't miss the boat. Don't be deluded by LG or you might miss the Messiah. Be careful about what's going on where you live. So we said the Messiah event then involves the inauguration of the new covenant. We should all know Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. That's a passage that has to be second nature to us. So if anybody asks us, why are you this way? You can say, ah, we entered the new covenant. It's explicitly here in Jeremiah 31 through 34. It's also in 36, 24 through 28, but we should also read the whole of 36, the whole of 37 and all of Isaiah. And what does it come with? A prolepsis. What is a prolepsis? Because we got to define that term. A. This is my own definition I came up came up with over the years. A profound present foretaste of a promised profounder f- full taste. It's poetic. It's easy to understand. And all other de- definitions I use led to 32 questions in email. Yes, we get that right. You get a foretaste of a coming full taste. Yes, we provide the world in which we live with a foretaste of the coming full taste of that invisible kingship of God and Messiah in the heavens on earth. I'm even so bold in a coffee shop to use the word prolepsis. Henry, what are you doing over there? You look so excited. Oh, it's a prolepsis, John. Yeah, even the socks are pointing to this glorious thing that's coming that I get the chance to live in now. I am beside myself because I got into the new covenant. And then it's not just that for me. I had the privilege as a Gentile of being in that text in Zechariah that said in that day, they're going to go and grab the tzitzit of the garment of a Jew and say, take me with you. Ask the Jewish leaders of our congregation how many times I say that. Marcy, thank you for letting me go with you. Howard, thank you for letting me go with you. Paul, thank you for letting me go with you. Jeff, thank you for letting me go with you. Why? I rode your tzitzit into the new covenant. And... While I'm not a Jew, I'm beside myself. I had to ask Howard, is it okay if in the back, if I'm a little explosive now, during the singing and whatever else, is that okay? Why, I can't help myself, I'm in the new covenant. What is the good news? What does the new covenant come with? What is it a prolepsis of? We gotta have this whole list, so we put the whole list in the course. It's the good news of Messiah and the kingship of God. See, especially Isaiah 52, 7. It's the restoration, return, turning back to. Peter read two passages that had all that verbiage in it. I was like, how how good is this? It fits right here. The restoration, the return, the turning back to Israel, to the God of Israel, Jews as Jews. The influx of the nation, Gentiles as Gentiles. The new creation, resurrection. Prolepsis. We walk in newness of life now, Paul says in Romans. But anybody here feel like they're fully resurrected? And anybody in need of a new body? I am post-menopausal. I've got a big need. The Ruach HaKodesh, in an unprecedented way in history, we get the Ruach HaKodesh. And it's the marker that you're in the new covenant. And where is God's Torah? No longer in stone, no longer in script. Able to be lived from the interior of a human being out. Forgiveness of sin and what? New capacity for faithfulness because God was only ever looking for a faithful covenant partner. I will be your God, you will be my people. We should see 2 Samuel 7 on the permanent promised Davidic king forever. We should see Jeremiah 31. We should see Ezekiel 36 and 37. We should see all of Isaiah and especially the word for good news in Greek comes directly from Isaiah 52.7. Are you excited? Are you excited yet? <laughs> Gentiles are turning from idols to the living and true God. Isn't that great news? Do you know what a problem that is for them in a Roman colony? You've turned from the idols, you're not going to sacrifice to the emperor, you're not going to sacrifice to Zeus. You're going to go to your meeting and they're going to go, hey, Dan. Lauren, I saw you at the meeting. I didn't see you participate in the sacrifice. What's the problem? You got to say, I got got Messiah. I got a new God. What? This might cost you big time. Honor, economically. Jews are embracing their Messiah and entering the new covenant. Do You understand there's a problem in the Roman world, no matter if you're a Messianic Gentile or you're a Messianic Jew. There's a problem there for you. And one of the tendencies you're going to have, because the Messianic Jews... They're in trouble with normative Judaism. Christopher Zoccoli in his book, new book on Philippians, which is tremendous. We're going to talk all about it, right? Not in a sermon, but some other time. Christopher Zoccoli wrote this incredible new book uh, from a post-supersessionist perspective on what is Philippians all about. And he talk, talks about normative Judaism. And all he's trying to get us to understand is the Messianic Jews are all about following Messiah who's rejected by normative Judaism in all of its sects. So you're in trouble with them. And understand, normative Judaism worked out its rights to live its way of life with the Roman Empire. So if you want to be safe as a Jewish person, you would give up on Messiah, and you'd go be with normative Judaism, where there's no problem, no pressure. But Paul's letter is, do not do that. Messiah is the way of life we must follow. And so we're going to have pressures and problems on all sides. You can look at Paul's rule in all the communities of Messiah followers in 1 Corinthians 7:17 7, through 24. The visiting scholar this year, May 4 through 6, is going to address Paul's rule about now that Messiah has come, Jews remain Jews and Gentiles re- remain Gentiles in Messiah. And guess what? You're going to have to work out your communal rescue together. All the halakhic stuff. We're not going to be have baked, bacon cheeseburgers when we're out to lunch with Jeff. You see my point? You've got to work out all Romans 14 and 15 about is all the eating and drinking problems. And you've got to defer to each other and you've got to look out for each other and you've got to remember that this thing was a Jewish entity to begin with. And Gentiles pay serious attention to that. Why? Because we're so privileged to have become a part of this Jewish entity by God's mercy. We're rejoicing alongside his people. We need to think of the ramifications of being a Gentile in a Roman colony. We've already said much of this, but they're turning from idols. They might now be inclined to compromise their heavenly citizenship to avoid suffering, economic hardship, imprisonment, or death. We go back to the story of Lydia. Lydia is a serious purple fabric merchant, and she is an outspoken voice for Messiah in all of Europe, the base being made there where she was. Can you imagine the pressures she was under as a messianic? That could co- That could have cost her her entire business as she was transparent and not hiding the fact that she was one of those messianic. We need to think about the cost and we, re- we need to remember that whose God is their belly means people who live in a way that conforms to the age or the empire in which they live precisely to avoid Suffering, economic hardship, imprisonment, or death. We already mentioned this that Gentiles could have been inclined then to go join normative Judaism where there's no pressure. And that's what Zachary's main contribution in his book is about. It's about chapter three. Chapter three of Philippians is not about Paul giving up his Jewishness to become what? Gentile? It doesn't even make any sense. It's about him saying, I had the best Jewish pedigree in the pre-Messianic normative Judaism. You cannot, that's no longer an option. Messiah has come. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, we stay the course and pay the price like Yeshua did. So let's try. Do I technically have 10 minutes left? Hosanna in the highest. I'm gonna try to give you the gist of the rest of the book, in short. The main point we wanna walk away with Live out your heavenly citizenship in your earthly Roman colony according to those values. And it's not like every value of the empire in which we live is no good. It's not the total demonization of the empire in which we live. Because listen, at the end of this book, in chapter 4, there's this statement, never been handled too well from my perspective, in 4.8. And here's how I rendered it for the course. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are worthy of respect, whatsoever things are right, whatsoever things are integrious, characterized by integrity, whatsoever things are, are, are admirable, whatsoever things are commendable, six things, right? If there's anything of exceptional civic virtue... Virtue, anything worthy of universal praise, concentrate on these things. So, we're going to live a messianic life and it's going to irritate all the peoples around us. That is a given. When you're in Messiah, you suffer for his sake, for his name. That is a given. But also, to try to be at peace with the cultures that surround us, we do what's in chapter 4 whatsoever things are universally recognized as good, you highlight as good. When the person not in the messianic worldview dives out in front of a bus and saves your child and is killed, you don't put in the obituary, gee, uh, what a story. Some guy dove out, was killed, saved my child, uh, but they weren't in the Messiah. You don't add that to the obituary, do you? But you hear this all the time in the culture. Some incredibly good thing is done, and someone says, yeah, that wasn't done in Messiah. Whatsoever things are good, we, we universally agree with the person. We say, that's good. I used the example in the course the other night of, of Whitney Houston's voice. Anybody ever hear that voice? You just heard her sing, and you thought, oh. people say what? That's a what kind of voice? Everybody goes, that's an angelic. Is that the time for theology? It's not an angelic Voice Janus, from the devil. Is that the time for that? No, it's not. Hyperbolic Paul, hyperbolic Henry. So they live out their heavenly citizenship and their Roman colony in a manner worthy. And, And then they have to, oh, it says total solidarity. My bad. Solidarity is when we share, right? Values, objectives, solidarity. I think it's a more powerful word than unity we need to also what? inflesh Paul's prayer requests that their love will continue to abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment so that they choose the superior things of all the things you can choose to do in your way of life, in your Roman colony, you choose the superior things in order to be not mixed like a, a gem that's got an alloy in it and blameless in the sense of above reproach so that when the day of Messiah comes, That's how you are, above reproach. What is love? You can go to the online free Love of God course, 113 people in it right now. What is love? Paul prays that your love would abound more and more. Does that mean that we would all be more? Is it just pathos? No. Is it just passion? Is it just emotion? No. Love is the wondrous privileged obligation to act, to act, to act. The main point. You take the course, you'll find out how to act at the Kleenex box level in your marriage. Some of you already get that. In covenant fidelity, faithfulness, servanthood, service and instrumental help, obedience, the responsive carrying out of one's covenantal promises and responsibilities, out of gratitude for being in covenant relationship. In short, love is the action of letting covenant character flow forth in the nitty gritty of our everyday lives. Inherent, that is, belonging to such love is self-sacrifice and pouring yourself out on behalf of one another's. In flesh, Paul's continued prayer that on the day of Messiah, you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Not even gonna say another word about that. Exhorted not to be intimidated in any way by those who oppose your way of life. Stand firm, Messianic Gentiles, next to Messianic Jews, appropriating what you need to appropriate stand firm. And then he says what? It has been graciously granted for the sake of Messiah, not only to entrust yourselves to Messiah, but to what? Suffer for his sake. There's a text that tells you that suffering for his sake is a gift from God. It's the same root in Greek as joy and grace. Make his joy complete by sharing the same mindset having the same love, being solidary ones. Here's the solidarity. You have an entire union of interests, responsibilities, objectives, and standards in the community. This is not our idol. This is our way of life. Stay with me. I'm almost done. Do nothing out of selfishness or vainglory, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves, looking out for not only your own concerns, but those of others'. He then gives them three examples to follow, the first one being Yeshua. And I'm going to say this to you like my first biblical studies degree professor said it to me, said it to a class in Philippians. He said, here in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, really 6 through 11, you have the Messiah hymn. We're going to have a course on the early hymns to Messiah in early June, and this is one of the hymns we'll cover. And he says, in that hymn, the way Paul's using it, it says... That Yeshua is equal with God and yet did not regard his equality with God as something to be exploited to his own advantage, but took the form of a slave and came and poured himself out on behalf of others. The professor then said, if one who's equal to God doesn't exploit that equality like the Roman emperor, and all the leaders of Rome do, but rather took the form of a slave and poured himself out on behalf of others, what's your excuse? Can you imagine the impact of that question on that class? It was just like this. We were sitting at desks, and I saw everybody go, yes? You got to work out your communal, holistic health together without grumbling and arguing so that we might shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We've got to follow the example of Epaphroditus, who risked his neck for Paul. Read the story. He got sick and almost died. You've got to watch out for the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilation. We won't say anything about that for time reasons, but that is in the course. And then you have to pattern your life after Paul himself in select ways. We're not all called to be hyperbolic Paul. We're called to be what we are to the body so that all those different members get the function done and we are what we are and what we need to be in this 21st century history. we got to follow the path of maturity. Whatever we have attained to, we hold on to it and we keep progressing, being motivated by all that is coming in the full taste. we got to rejoice in the Lord always. That's straight out of Deuteronomy 32 rejoice, O nations, with his people. He wants us to do that all the time so the whole world knows the new covenant is in town. And finally, this letter closes with a word about prayer. And recently, we've had to say to a whole group of people all over the world, this prayer should not be ripped out of its context and used against people with mental illness or physiological conditions of anxiety. It is wrong of messianics to tell somebody, if you just read the Bible more, if you just had more prayer, you would have no anxiety. That is not the way this passage is to be used. This is saying this to a a group of people who are messianics, who are living in a Roman colony where there's pressures against them, and you could easily become anxious. What if you're Lydia and you're losing, you're worried about losing your purple fabric business? What should you do? Here it is. Don't be anxious about even one thing, but in everything, robustly practiced, general and specific prayer with Thanksgiving. Letting, it says the text, letting your request be made known to God. Why? Because he's clueless about what you need? No, Because then you're being transparent about the real need. Lord, I'm stressed out here. Can you imagine, Paul? Lord, I'm stressed out here. I got to do this. We need the funding. You're being transparent before God. Yes, that's what, that's what that phrase or that clause about letting your request be made known is all about. Is being transparent before God to let Him know I can't, I can't make it in this messianic worldview without you, given the pressures we face from a 360 degree perspective, and I'm not caving in to the values. Of the colony in town. So what do I do? I pray. And what's the promise? God's shalom is gonna mount guard around your hearts and minds where the worry comes. Just see that movie, The Gladiator, where all the they they surround the person with shields. That's exactly the image here. All those people with the shields, they form a circle around you to keep out what? Anxiety about being in the messianic way of life while you live in the U.S. colony. Oh, is that a Freudian slip? No, that was intentional. Let's pray. So, Avinu Malkinu, our father, our king, we thank you for the incredible institution of the new covenant. We thank you that it's come, the true good news. We thank you that we're not in a namby-pamby religion today. We're in a way of life you deemed necessary for Abraham and his offspring to bring to the whole world, to restore all of humanity to yourself. Have your way in us. We want to be Messianic Jews as Jews, Messianic Gentiles as Gentiles, milking the marrow out of this thing to give the world a foretaste of the coming full taste. May it be so in us. May we be a congregation useful in your hands, in your 21st century history. This we are asking in the same spirit of dependence that Yeshua had on you. Amen.